Charles Dickens wrote that classic play, A Christmas Carol, about that wealthy yet sad man named Ebenezer Scrooge. You may remember that at near the beginning of the play, Mr. Scrooge is awakened in the middle of the night and taken by a ghost to revisit a scene from his early life. Scrooge stands there by a window looking in at this joyful Christmas Eve. At that time, Scrooge was serving as a young apprentice in his business career under Mr. Fuzzywig. Mr. and Mrs. Fuzzywig on this particular Christmas Eve shut down the business early so that all the employees and family and friends can gather around. They bring in a fiddler who plays music for them to sing and dance and rejoice and laugh. And Ebenezer Scrooge stands there with the ghost looking in on that scene, remembering that there was a time in his life when he too could sing and rejoice, but no longer. His heart has been broken. He cannot imagine shutting down the business early on Christmas Eve. Celebration is not in his plans. Grief has overtaken him. Greed has invaded him. And there is no singing, no partying, nothing he can join, even though he would like to. Today's scripture lesson is about a group of people who were so weighed down with worry and regret that they too were unable to sing. About 600 years before the time of Jesus, the people of God faced what was for them a national disaster. The survival of their nation and of their faith was at risk. The people of God, known at that time as Israel, felt embarrassed on the international scene. The first few chapters of Zephaniah spell out the specific doom and gloom they were experiencing. I'll save you the trouble of reading all three chapters and give you the quick summary. The people are wicked and God is smoking hot mad. <laughs> Punishment is sure to come and they are paralyzed with fear. But I like better how one of the psalmists in one of the psalms in the middle of that long section of psalms describes this period of history for God's people. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Recently, I read a novel called A Place for Us, and every time I picked up that novel, I started humming that song. I didn't recognize it at first, but I kept hearing this song. And then I remembered that song from West Side Story, A Place for Us, somewhere there's a place for us, a place of peace and quiet and open air. Somewhere we'll find a new way of living. Somewhere we'll find a new way of forgiving. And I began to read the novel differently, thinking that this author of A Place for Us wanted me to read it as a modern-day West Side Story, only in this novel it wasn't the sharks and the jets in New York City, the Puerto Ricans and the white gang, 
feuding against one another, but rather it was painting the cultural dilemmas of our more modern time, and it showed a particular family, a Muslim American family who had immigrated from India, settled in California. They were raising their two daughters and their son to be strictly adherent to their Muslim faith. And at the same time, they wanted the family to fit into American culture. They debate as a family whether or not the girl should wear the headscarf, whether or not the men and the boy should grow their beards long. And then the father gets a call the day after 9-11 that his son has been involved in a fight at school and will be expelled. But the counselor explains that it was not the son's fault. And so the father asks the son, were the boys teasing you about your religion? No, he, he won't answer. But it is the truth that his faith has made him separate from them. And so he rejects his parents' religion. He turns to drugs and alcohol. He drifts away from the family. And he is gone from all of them for three years. And then the sister gets married. And so he comes home for the wedding. But at the scene of the wedding, with all the joyous dancing and singing in the wedding hall, with all the lavish food and all the friends they've ever known gathered there in the room, they cannot sing because the son sits out in the lobby with a drink and the mother and the father and the sisters are all heartbroken. Unresolved grief and pain prevents them from singing. During this month of December, some of us are in that same place where we find it difficult to sing and rejoice. Now, some of us find that everything is going quite well in life. Life is good, but others struggle. We have buried a loved one in the past year, and we miss them at this first Christmas. Or we had a particular life plan that hasn't turned out the way we wanted it, the way we dreamed about it. I love what the Christian mystic Meister Eckhart said about Christmas. He said, what good is it to me that Mary gave birth to the Son of God long ago and I do not also give birth to the Son of God in my time and in my culture. Well, even if our lives are filled with joyful, good blessings, even if our hearts naturally want to sing, sometimes we find it difficult to sing knowing that there are two million malnourished children in Yemen on the brink of death by starvation. We see the horrific photos, and we know that 400,000 children in that land are critically ill, and that their families are facing the absolute doom and gloom, as did the people of Zephaniah. We know, when we hear those stories, that they are suffering because American bombs have fallen there. Here in our own country, we too face the reality of staggering problems. Just this week, the CDC reported that drug death overdoses have risen to an all-time high 70,000 last year, and the suicide rate has increased 3.7%, not a number we want to see go up. Many of us modern folk live in a context 
where despair is as real for us as it was for the people in the time of Zephaniah. But here's the odd thing about that whole book of Zephaniah. For the first three chapters, we read how terrible, horrible, and hopeless life has become. If you want to just depress yourself this afternoon, go home and read the first three chapters. But then halfway through chapter three, the prophet says, start singing. What? How can we sing now? But sometimes, it is precisely in these phases of despair that we experience that God is truly there in the midst of us, as the text says multiple times. Some of you may have seen or heard this week on the radio, as I did, the interview that Steve Kraske did with Michael Beschloss. Beschloss has a new book out called The Presidents of War, and it is about how our early presidents through more modern times have endured some of the most difficult days of leading our country through wartime. The historian Michael Beschloss commented that oftentimes these American presidents who were our leader during wartimes found that their own faith, their own Christian faith deepened and grew and blossomed during these horrific moments. I was particularly moved by the story about President Lincoln, who started out his adult life, his young life, thinking of himself more as an agnostic or an atheist. But one day during the Civil War, a friend visited him and found him sitting in his study reading the Bible. Lincoln ex explained to the friend that he found the pages of scripture deeply comforting. And then some leaders came to President Lincoln and said that it was time to build a new cemetery for the fallen soldiers because they were running out of room in the current military cemeteries. He said, go and build the cemetery near my summer home. When I go to my cabin in the summer, I want to see the open graves of the Union soldiers being prepared for their fallen bodies. I want to be reminded each day of the pain that I have caused through my actions as the president. It is into the midst of this kind of raw pain that the prophet Zephaniah speaks, God is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. God will turn your shame into praise. Change is coming. The world is about to turn not because you have figured life all out, but because God is coming. That is what the word Advent means. It means arrival or coming. Someone spectacular is on the way. One theologian puts it this way. God gives the world the potential to become what God desires it to be. But it can be hard to believe, can't it? Will God really come into our midst? And if so, what is taking God so long? The scripture says God will rejoice over you, but if we were to read it in Hebrew, we would read it like this. God will dance over you. It is almost like it is God who has shifted, that God's heart has reversed itself and begun to sing a new tune, that God's mind has been changed, that God has come into a new place 
where God chooses to sing and dance again right in the midst of us. I love this story told by my classmate Norman Wurzbaugh in his new book. He tells about this scene from the movie called As It Is in Heaven. The film is about a famous European conductor who decided to go back home to his small village to recuperate. He was exhausted and just needed a rest, but the locals called him together and said, we want to have a community choir, will you direct us? He agreed, but he regretted it because they can't really sing. They, they don't sing well together. They bicker with one another. He tries all of his fancy techniques that he has learned as a world-class conductor, and nothing works until one day, right in the middle of rehearsal, when they are rehearsing Amazing Grace, he says, stop. What is wrong? And one woman says, I don't like singing next to her. She's having an extramarital affair, and I don't approve of her morality. <laughs> and the next woman says, my husband is beating me. I have no self-confidence. I can't really sing. And the next man says, I don't like him being in the choir. He's mentally handicapped and will never sing well with him in our midst. And in this moment of naming their brokenness, something changes. Slowly, they begin to come together. They begin to share their lives. And the most beautiful harmony emerges so that they begin planning a public spring concert featuring the battered woman as the soloist. God comes. God comes and sings and dances among us when we least expect it. We sing not because the song is within us. We sing because God comes. And then we know that the world will change. <coughs> Do you remember that scene in the old film, Shawshank Redemption? <coughs> Two prisoners who will never spend another day of their lives outside of prison have this conversation. Rod is played by Morgan Freeman and Andy is played by Tim Robbins. And Morgan Freeman says, you know, hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. And Tim Robbins replies, hope. It's a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. The God who came will come again. That God will come to us singing. Well, in the end of that novel I told you about at the beginning, that novel called A Place for Us, the father begins to regret how he spent so much of his son's childhood teaching him the lessons of God's judgment and God's justice, but not enough time teaching his son about God's mercy and God's abiding love. And so the father begins racking his brain and searching for a way that he might reconnect with his long lost son. He doesn't even know anymore where the son is living. And so he goes to his daughter, who's a physician. She was always very close to her brother. And so he says, do you ever hear from him? Do you know where he's living? No, she said, 
I, I don't know anything, but sometimes in our home, the telephone rings, and if I answer, they hang up. But sometimes I hear the phone ring, and my eight-year-old son is in the other room, and I hear him answer, and I hear him have a conversation. I think it's my brother calling. He wants to know about you and about Mama and about our sister. He wants to know about the grandchildren. The father has become very close to this grandson, and so he goes to his eight-year-old grandson and he says, if you ever get a message from a secret friend, if you ever get a phone call from someone who you consider to be your secret friend, would you give your secret friend a message from me? The little boy refuses to acknowledge that a secret friend exists or that he's ever gotten such a phone call. But he sits patiently listening to his grandfather and the grandfather goes on, here's the message. If your secret friend calls, say to him, there is another way, come back. We will make another path. And if your secret friend says no, you say this to him. I used the wrong words. I acted the wrong way. I will wait. I will wait until you are ready. I will always wait for you. The little boy is quiet. He nods. I have it memorized. Start singing. God is waiting for us to come back. God will be dancing when we return. <laughs>